Welcome to the Cambridge Tech Podcast, talking all things technology from the heart of the UK's tech capital. Here are your hosts, Faye Holland and James Parton. Hello, I'm Faye. And I'm James. Joining us this week is Patrick Short from Sano Genetics. Really looking forward to chatting to Patrick. We've known each other for a few years now, and they're almost the perfect poster child of a Cambridge startup, founded by three Cambridge PhDs and have been part of the Cambridge ecosystem over the last four years. So can't wait to get into the details. Hi, Patrick. Great to see you. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your background and how you got to Sanogenetics? So my background is in genetics and large-scale genetic testing. So uh, listeners can probably tell from my accent that I'm from the U.S. originally, or at least from North America, depending how good your your accent detection is. I'm from North Carolina in the U.S., but I moved over to Cambridge uh, in the U.K. about almost 10 years ago now to do my Ph.D. in large-scale genetic testing and uh, focused in particular on rare diseases. So improving the diagnostic rate of rare and ultra rare diseases using all different kinds of genetic testing. And that's led me to start company Sonogenetics about uh, four years ago now. And we focused on building a software platform that helps organizations, whether they're industry like pharma and biotech or academic researchers to run large scale genetic testing studies and covers everything from participant consent, engagement, the genetic testing itself, and the return of results. Uh, so that's kind of a, a really short background up to the present. But I got into this because of my background in research and genetics. And also, we we do have a rare genetic disease in the family as well that's been uh, very formative for me in terms of what I've chosen to work on and the kinds of things I was exposed to growing up. So you've studied this, you've done your PhD, you've now set up a business. Can you give us an idea of the size of the issue we're looking at? Yeah. So if we think about medical research in general, and precision medicine as a kind of subset of it that we're focused on, it's it, it's an enormous section of the economy and it's an enormous part of our lives. So something like 8 to 10% of all of GDP is spent on health. And so when we think about precision medicine, what that is to me is how do we design therapies that are more tailored to us as individuals using stuff that's intrinsic to us like genetics, but also our environment, the way we eat, uh, the things that we do differently, how do we tailor that treatment to be really specific. And it's also about early detection and ultimately prevention of disease rather than waiting till it gets to its later course. Uh, One of the things that I've liked about the work that we've done at Sano is we do a really broad range of diseases from adult and elderly onset chronic diseases like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's disease, all the way down to diseases that affect young children and the various early stages of life and and everything in between. Uh, So genetics and precision medicine really is about how can we take the entire journey of, of a person's journey through healthcare and through life and make it a lot more tailored to them to be more precise and more tailored to to their particular genetic makeup and uh, their biology so it's more effective. So is it that we're missing out on opportunities for trials? What's the consequences of this? Yeah, so I think there's two there's two separate problems or two separate cases. If we start with with one that's really simple, there are about 7,000 genetic rare diseases and only a couple hundred of them have any treatment whatsoever. So we've got a huge opportunity as an industry to treat more than 
7,000 diseases where patients currently have no option whatsoever. Um, and this ranges from things that affect adults, affect children, everyone in between. Uh, and the reason for that is most of these diseases are rare. And they've only been discovered in the last maybe 10 to 20 years due to genetic testing and other new technology changes. But we've got an opportunity now to treat those patients in ways that weren't possible before using things like gene editing and gene therapy that you, you probably have spoken to guests on the podcast in the past about. Uh, so that's one category of the thousands of rare diseases that have no treatment. And then the second is when we think of common diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's that I mentioned earlier, Many of them actually have treatments, but they don't work for everybody. They don't work very well. And part of the reason for that is because they're really not one disease. Parkinson's disease is a collection of different genetic subtypes and drivers. And most drug developers believe that we actually need to treat those genetic subsets and treat patients with that disease in a much more fine-grained manner. And then on top of that, like you mentioned, the typical drug development program takes 10 to 15 years. It costs a billion dollars. It's really slow. Uh, it's, it's, it's really high stakes. Failures cost a huge amount of money. So when we layer all of those things together, there's a lot of opportunity to do things different uh, across that whole 10 to 15 year journey. So you see, you know, a lot of successful startups, they're all about re-engineering an existing process and removing friction. Is it fair to categorize your business in those terms? And, and is it, if it is, you know, how do you demonstrate that return on investment with your customers? It's very much that kind of approach. So we describe often to our customers something they recognize really intuitively as a catch-22 of developing a precision medicine, which is if you need to find a, a large number of patients with a specific genetic profile, then you need large-scale genetic testing. And it would be nice if the healthcare system was testing patients as a standard of care, but the healthcare system won't pay for it until there's a reason to do so, until there's an approved drug or it's going to change the patient's uh, trajectory in some way. So you have this catch-22 where the healthcare system's not testing patients because there's no reason to. That makes the drug developers' jobs harder because they can't find patients with these genetic subtypes, and you have this catch-22. So a big part of what we do is we try to unblock that in two ways. One is making it easier to get access to data sets that already exist. So often patients are being tested by large-scale research programs or even some of the big direct-to-consumer testing companies, and it's a matter of making that data more usable to the drug development process. Uh, so that's kind of arm one of our approach. And then the second is making it easier for patients to get testing in the first place before there's necessarily a clinical benefit. It's really a research test that we're doing and saying we have a hypothesis that this new medicine might help people like you. And we're going to make that possible through a genetic testing program. And, and the, the things that we bundle together are really the genetic testing and genetic counseling process, recruitment, so finding patients who are interested and want to take part, and then long-term engagement. So through the course of a multi-year study or series of studies, how do you make it worth the patient's while to actually stay part of that research project that might take many years and, and dozens of visits across the, uh, across the couple of years that they're involved? So within your business, is it a kind of 50-50 split, providing the information for the pharmaceutical companies and then getting the people involved in the clinical trials? So we spend most of the time on the technology platform, which is the software and the genetic testing and analysis. And the reason for that is at a certain scale of research, recruitment is you need to have often tens or dozens of organizations involved anyways. And 
if you're running a global phase three clinical trial where you need thousands of patients around the world, our sweet spot is providing the software and the testing that coordinates that whole process. But usually, especially large pharmaceutical and biotech companies, universities have their own recruitment teams that can pick up a software like ours uh, and use it to find the patients. And then we handle the process of getting the genetic testing done, handling the counseling analysis, and so on. Um, but in practice, we do help with recruitment as well, because we've run a large number of these programs and so have a lot of experience with that as well. And I believe you're putting together the full service wrap as well, right? So you're offering study design, consultancy, pre-screening, DNA testing, kind of the whole end-to-end thing, right? Yeah, that's right. And and part of the pain of doing these that we found with our customers is a lot of our customers were trying to set up a process like this themselves and were kind of stitching together a few different things, five or six different companies. So we've been working to build it all into one platform uh, to make it easier. And the big focus for us this year is scaling internationally as well. One of the big opportunities, but also challenges of running one of these studies is how do you do it not just in the US and UK and in a couple of different countries in the in the EU, where it may be easy, but how do you push the envelope and make a program like this available pretty widely? Um, and I know you, you've spent some time, James, in scaling internationally and figuring out how to take businesses that work in one geography and move it to another. It's not easy, but it's something we're spending a lot of time on right now. So when you work with a customer, is there effectively a clause in the contract that allows you then to use that data in other trials? You know, do they buy into that community ethos of building something better that everyone benefits from? Yes, that's right. And if you frame it from the perspective of the participant, what we're what we're all trying to achieve is how do we get the participant matched to the most effective research opportunity for them? And exactly the point that you made when you have a lot of these programs running at once, their synergies by allowing participants to travel to if you're screened by one program, but you're not eligible for that, then you may be eligible for another one. So how do we increase the efficiency of the process as a whole? One of the reasons that these trial programs with multiple trials take five to 10 years to conduct is that uh, you're setting up these programs from scratch and everybody's trying to recruit the same set of patients and really reinvent the wheel over and over. So we're experimenting right now with some consortium type projects where we have multiple customers that are all working on the same disease and they all have an interest in um, defeating the status quo rather than defeating each other. So actually cooperating on a large scale screening program gets them all a lot further than trying to um, to do it individually. Which I guess means you've got to find a way of keeping everyone active and engaged. So how, how do you do that? Yeah, this is a big area of active research and product development for us. There's some low-hanging fruits that every researcher can do, which is sending participants regular updates about the progress even really simple ones like we've received your sample, we've analyzed it. Unless you've been part of a lot of research, you wouldn't realize how analog it can be where you submit your sample and you actually have no idea have they have they even received it. So there's there's a whole slew of really simple stuff that just builds that trust between the researcher and the participant that I've taken time or I've given my blood or my saliva to be part of this. And what am I getting back info about the contribution that I'm making, what my sample's gone to do, new research opportunities. And then there's an other levels of stuff we can provide like useful information for the participant that may may help them or their family members in the form of the genetic report that they get as being part of the study. And also we produce, we call them trait reports. They're really educational genetics reports about things like 
the amount of Neanderthal DNA that you have or the genetics behind circadian rhythms and muscle composition. These are things that aren't medical in nature, but help to teach people something about the principles of genetics and help them teach them something hopefully about themselves. And it's a little bit of a way also of explaining some of the challenging concepts of genetics in a way that's a little bit more relatable. So for example, some genetic diseases are very complex and some are very simple genetically, meaning if they're simple, then if you have the variant, you get the disease. And if you don't have the variant, you don't. If they're complex, then it might be hundreds or thousands of genes that contribute to whether or not you get the disease. And there are a lot of human traits that are really close analogs like that. So I can explain to you, and, and it's probably intuitive, that height is a very complex trait and weight is a very complex trait. It's not just one gene, but it's hundreds, thousands that contribute. Whereas other traits like eye color is a little bit simpler. There's a one gene that's particularly influential and, and there's a couple of others, but it's a lot simpler. And we know that because we are taught about eye color genetics in school as being this really simple trait, but others are a lot more complex. We use these reports as a way to explain some of the principles of genetics that help when you then get into a medical context of having to understand what does this report mean for me or for my family. Are you also taking on a kind of an education role to increase the numbers of people and the types of people that volunteer for these kinds of programs? Yeah, absolutely. The biggest challenge right now is the number of people who are tested with genetics. So I mentioned earlier, that there's kind of two ways to solve this problem. One is making it easier to get access to existing data. So if you've been tested once, the unique thing about genetics is you don't really need to redo it. Your genetics is the same when you're five years old as when you're 25 as when you're 55. So it's very unique. But in the UK, probably less than 5% of people have done any kind of consumer genetic tests like 23andMe or Ancestry. And um, only 1% or 2% have, have done some kind of healthcare system-affiliated genetic test, which is typically of a higher quality and depth. So we have a long way to go uh, to get everybody tested, at which point we're going to start to have some really interesting impacts on the healthcare system. Sorry to interrupt you there. I was just, how does that benchmark of the UK compare to other countries? The number of people who've done like ancestry testing and other direct consumer testing is a little bit higher in the US. Um, that whole concept, there's a lot of theories why, but maybe it's the consumer culture, maybe it's the fact that people don't know where their ancestors are from. So we do a little bit more genealogy research and, and that sort of thing in the US. But the numbers are a little bit higher on the ancestry and 23andMe type testing in the US. Healthcare testing, probably pretty similar, although the UK is is further ahead, much further ahead in some kind of genetic testing than than the US. It's it's a lot more coordinated here. And that's very different across the EU, depending where you look. There are a number of countries like Iceland has tested nearly the entire population. Finland and Denmark have really extensive genetics programs, but there are other countries that are not quite as advanced. That's the Western world you've got everywhere. You know, those 7,000 diseases are not restricted to the UK, US, Europe. Do you know what I mean? They they happen everywhere. So it's a, it's a huge undertaking to try and get everyone, you know, doing that level of genetic testing, isn't it? The comment then, Patrick, just thinking about what you said about Finland, you know, should every country be doing this? Should it be almost a compulsory activity? Yeah, I think it probably won't be compulsory just because of the sensitive nature of the data. But I think I predict within the next 10 years, 
probably the majority of countries, genetic testing will be something that everyone is offered very early in life, whether it's from birth or at your 18th birthday or, or maybe both times. The reason I think that's the case is because the cost of doing the testing continues to drop. And it's a very unique piece of data in that you only need to test yourself once if you use the but you know, a whole genome sequence. As the technology improves, you may need to test again at some point. But generally speaking, you only need to test once, and then you can assess risk for Alzheimer's, risk for heart disease, risk for pediatric rare illnesses. So there's a number of programs springing up around the world to do newborn sequencing and also to do sequencing of large numbers of, of healthy people and people in the healthcare system. And I, I think it's going to take time for the impact of this to filter all the way into the healthcare system to say, okay, we've now tested a million people and now we're actually learning how to apply it to prediction and prevention and guide treatment. But I think within the next decade or so, we're going to see most countries are offering this kind of testing as extremely routine. And, and it's almost going to fade into the background, maybe as part of the healthcare system where I'm, I, I'm optimistic that everything will be genetically guided where appropriate because it, the cost is going to make a lot of sense pretty soon. So we start in this week's news section talking to Prashant Shah from O2H. Prashant, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Faye. Our pleasure. So we've invited you on to introduce an initiative that you are personally leading. Can you tell us what Cambridge Wide Open Day is? Cambridge Wide Open Day is an opportunity to kind of showcase the the wonderful scientific, technological and entrepreneurial aspects of what's going on in Cambridge, uh, not only to inward investors, but to the people within Cambridge. There's so much going on in Cambridge and it's difficult to get around to everything in one go. And we'd like to involve the residents as well. Are there very keen to know what's going on in their communities and if the doors are open and there's an opportunity for them to come in then I think it's also important to gauge engage the community and the residents and the exciting kind of discoveries that are happening within our city walls. Yeah and ultimately there are potentially our future workforce and they're associated with with a lot of those businesses so it makes sense to include them doesn't it? Well, I think when you talk to the, the politicians and we, we look to compare the Cambridge ecosystem to others around the world, they're growing at a, a rapid clip um, and the funding, the infrastructure and the coordinated engagement of some of these other ecosystems. If you look at San Diego or Boston and many around Europe and even now Asia, um, I think for us to kind of compete with those ecosystems, it requires us to take everybody with us on this journey. They need to be aware what's going on. It's also about kind of helping Cambridge to kind of compete globally as a scientific and technological ecosystem. That's great. Sounds very impressive. So how is it made up? What is, what's happening during the day? So on June the 14th, we'll be having the core open day between 11 and 3 o'clock. So we've got around 30 signed up venues and we're looking to target around 50 signed up venues. And anyone can go to opencambridge.com and, and sign up to attend any one of these 20 or 30 venues. And it includes organizations and institutes, accelerators, including um, Cambridge Accelerate, the Judge Business School, AstraZeneca, Babraham, the Milner, um, venture capital firms. 
a whole range of people who are involved in the technological and scientific ecosystem of Cambridge are, are, are throwing open their doors. There'll be talks, there'll be discussions, there'll be tours. People can look across the open venues and see which ones they want to go to. Drop into their local science park. If you've ever wondered what was going on, drop by. We'll also be having um, a garden party at four o'clock at the Hawkston House at the Mill Cytec Park. So we'll have a few drinks and some food and kind of bring everybody together and hopefully the weather will be nice and we'll have a, a lovely garden party too from four o'clock to nine o'clock on the same day. And who doesn't love a garden party? It sounds brilliant, Prashant. Thank you for coming on and, and telling us a little bit about it. Maybe we can take the podcast on the tour with you. What a great idea. Absolutely. Thanks. I'm sure we'll hear more in the, in the coming weeks and a couple of months as well. So thanks for coming on Talking to us today, Prashant. Brought to you from our media partner, Business Weekly, here's what else has been in the news this week. The world-famous Royal Patworth Hospital in Cambridge is to use the Versius robotic arm from Cambridge company CMR Surgical for thoracic procedures. Quixent PLC in Cambridge, which provides technology mainly for the global gaming and broadcast industry, posts record profits despite macro headwinds. It's lifted revenue 38% higher to just shy of $120 million in the year to December 31st. One Nucleus, the Cambridge-based life science network, has released its annual report, which can be found on the One Nucleus Business Weekly and Cambridge Tech Podcast LinkedIn feeds. World-class twosome Zeta in San Francisco and Cambridge Tech Innovator Feature Space have joined forces to turn the screw on financial fraud. Widely covered in this week's press, a new report from London Economics Limited shows that the University of Cambridge has contributed almost £30 billion to the UK economy and supports nearly 90,000 jobs across the country. And finally, a £250 million 10-year master plan to redevelop Melbourne Science Park just outside of Cambridge has been unveiled by Bruntwood SciTech, a joint venture between Bruntwood and Legal and General. The vision is to scale support for the wider Cambridgeshire region as demand for specialist lab and office space soars. And now let's rejoin the conversation with Patrick. You touched on the sensitivity of data. I, I, I know you get asked this question a lot. And, you know, companies like you mentioned, like 23andMe, have been through the same questions What's your thoughts? So you hear the scare stories in media of things like health insurance going up because of data sold to insurance companies and that kind of stuff. So what's your approach to the control and the use of that data? Yeah, the the concerns are very real and it's different, again, country by country. I think this is one of the advantages of being a company that's based in the EU or was, was at the time when we started and also uh, starting in 2017, which was really as the GDPR discussions were happening, and it was very clear, we built our platform from the ground up where participants have total control of their data, can take a copy with one click, is, so it's totally portable, have really strong visibility into what's happening. And, and I think that's important for two reasons. One is purely from a trust building perspective, giving participants the clarity that they've got full control of their data and transparency around what's happening is a big barrier for a lot of people in participating in research in the first place. If the value to taking part is you know, medium, but the perceived risk is really high, then people will just decide not to take part. And then I think the second piece is there are some really real risks, like the insurance one that you mentioned. It's a little bit 
of a bigger concern in the US where the legislation isn't as tight as it is in the UK. Um, but it is still actually a concern in the UK where there are for some genetic diseases, insurance companies can deny coverage and, and those sorts of things. So I think that that legislation is probably going to need to change at some point in the future, especially as testing becomes more and more ubiquitous because it was written in a it, it, before we probably fully understood what the technology could be used for and how it was going to impact the healthcare system as a whole. So Patrick, I'm interested in your experiences now as an entrepreneur coming from doing your PhD. You know, the last four years have got to have been um, distinctly different. And it's not just you. There are three co-founders that are all Cambridge PhDs, I believe. Yeah, so I met Will and Charlotte. Uh, we were all doing our PhDs at the Sanger Institute, and we were all students uh, at St. Edmund's College in Cambridge. So Charlotte was focused on cancer genomics, working on single-cell genomics uh, in pediatric cancers. Will was focused on machine learning, image recognition, and and more on the math and computer science side. And then, and then I mentioned what I worked on earlier. So we we came together and focused on this idea. And exactly as you said, we were working nights and weekends and building the first prototype as I was finishing up my PhD in, in the final year. And uh, I had a couple weeks off in between finishing my PhD, went, traveled with a friend in South Africa. And then I started uh, with Will and Charlotte basically on day one, a couple weeks later. And it was a big shift. I think the PhD trains you in a lot of ways really well, but there are a lot of things that you just don't cover. So I think the things that deep research training does suit you well for an entrepreneurial career is you you learn to be very truth seeking i think when at least with my phd supervisor he was really rigorous in helping us to understand when we had really found something and when we needed to go back in the lab the proverbial lab i was in the computer but you know what i mean in the back in the lab and figure it out and i think that's really important when you're running a business as well because you've got to figure out whether it's working or not it doesn't really matter if you you can't bluff your way out. You've really got to build something that's important to people and solves a problem. But there's a whole host of other things like hiring and managing people and creating multi-year budgets and plans and things like that, that I've had to learn with the help of investors and advisors and mentors and other people. But it's been a lot of fun. I've, I've enjoyed working with Will and Charlotte and the rest of the team. And uh, we're about 45 people right now, which is also a big change over the past four years or so since it was just the, the three of us in the beginning. Let's talk about GrowthWorks. It's the fully funded program that's supporting the leaders of ambitious growth businesses to scale and double their profits and productivity. If you're looking to take your business to the next step, GrowthWorks will support you to plan bigger, scale faster, and stay ahead of the game so you can deliver on both your financial and market share targets. Exclusively for businesses across Cambridgeshire and Peterborough, GrowthWorks is here to help you. Get started and arrange a call with them on www.growthworks.uk. I mean, obviously, as the Cambridge Tech Podcast, we, we have a lot of people on the show that have built businesses in Cambridge or are going through the process of building a business, or in fact, some of the organizations that are helping, you know, provide the support infrastructure to startups in the, in the city. What's your experience been as an entrepreneur and starting in Cambridge? You know, what's your take on the infrastructure that's available, the kind of support that you get as founders? It's a really good place. So 
Charlotte is French, Will is from the UK, and then I'm from the US. And so we thought a lot about different locations and where where would be the place to start. We liked Cambridge because it's a very tight-knit ecosystem. So you can get to know people who've built, like you mentioned, incredible businesses really easily. It's also close enough to London that we did a lot of our fundraising down in London. And now we're, we're spending a lot of time in the US as the amount we're raising gets a little bit bigger. But we, London has changed a lot and Cambridge has changed a lot since then where it's started to catch up a little bit to where the US is. So we actually started as a hybrid company in that we had most of our team in Cambridge, but we had a couple people elsewhere. And now we're a fully remote company, although I, I think probably still about a third of our team is in Cambridge um, because y- there's great people here, basically. And, uh, and it's helpful to be able to get together occasionally. One of the reasons we did go the hybrid and remote route is Cambridge is a small town and it's hard to find enough software engineers and some of these other really critical roles that we felt we had to a little bit increase the size of the pond that we were looking in. And so maybe part of my wish list for Cambridge would be whether we could figure out a way to attract more people physically into the city with more of a pure tech background. Because I think Cambridge is really strong on life sciences, bioinformatics. We've never had a challenge finding great people in those kinds of roles. And you probably hear this from a lot of people that the, the same couple thousand software engineers in physically in Cambridge are in really high demand. So I think that's one thing for the city to think about in the 10 year plan, so to speak. I mean, you, you touched on something there about being a completely remote working company. As, as three kind of co-founding scientists, does that put more pressure on you as leaders in terms of building the company culture and hiring people? You know, how do you maintain that sense of being all on a kind of mission together and, and a journey together with everyone being, you know, dispersed. Yeah, it's um, it's really hard, but I think it's really important. So we spend a lot of time on it. And Charlotte, our COO, really runs the people operation side of the business. And so she spends even more time than than I do thinking about it. But there's a couple principles that we've tried to follow. The first is, as a remote company, you can't just try to take things that work in an office environment and remix them to work in a remote environment. For example, we have this idea of the water cooler or the if you go to the WeWork in Cambridge, you go to the barista and you have a quick catch up. That's not something that necessarily natively works all that well in a remote environment. And so you have to think differently of if we throw out the old rule book of what works in an office, rather than try and recreate the office in Zoom or in Slack, what can we do that's that's really different? And we've arrived on a number of different things, but one specific thing that I think is really working is we get together in person once every three months for like a dedicated multi-day offsite. The primary purpose of that is just to get to know your coworkers in the real world. One of the mistakes that we made in one of the early ones was we tried to use it as like a annual strategy and planning. We're going to plan out the whole year kind of thing in these two days. But actually, it was really clear that the best use of that time was just to spend the water cooler type of time for those two days. We fly our people from the US in, everyone from around the UK will we'll typically go to a nice place somewhere in the UK. And that pays dividends that then people can go home, they can go back to their great homeworking setups, and they can do the things like the annual planning and, and, and other sorts of work, but not have to cram it into those two days. So there's a, a number of different things. And we've looked to a number of different companies, like there's a, a 
quite a successful one called GitLab that has open sourced their entire remote working handbook. So we learn a lot from companies that are a couple stages beyond us in scale about what works and what doesn't in that sort of environment. I think it's always important to remember the team aspect, isn't it? And even more, you've just got to be more conscious, I think, when you are working remotely. But it sounds like it sounds like you've you've learned a few things and you're developing that. Yeah, definitely. Can I, I want to jump back actually to the investment comments you made earlier on? So you started in Cambridge, then quickly went to London, and now you're in the US looking for the next round of funding. What What is that funding journey like and how does it differ? And do you think it's right that it's it's the mix of those three different areas? What, what benefits do they all have over each other? Just for context, we raised a Series A about 12 months ago, seed before that, and a pre-seed right as we were finishing and spinning out. I think the most important thing for especially the first couple rounds is that you find people who really understand your vision, who you really want to work with, and who you think are going to materially increase the chances of your success. And I just think the chances that you definitely find those people in one city, whether it's London or San Francisco or Cambridge or Berlin is is low. And so you need to cast a wide net. You don't necessarily want to talk to hundreds of people, but I think it's really important to not just settle for the geography around you. And one of the positive impacts, I think, of the world being a little bit more remote friendly now is you can run a completely online fundraising process. Uh, And if you want to meet in the real world, you can go meet in the real world before everybody makes a, a final decision. But it means that you can meet investors in London, Cambridge, Berlin, in the US, all within a day and really find the person who's going to be the best partner for you. And you know, if, if people insist on meeting in person, then you've got to ride the tube around London for three weeks to meet everybody. That's interesting. So one of my favorite, and I'm sure Faye's favorite things about the podcast has been going into the colleges and meeting the really early stage student teams and researcher teams. Uh, we've done things like the Chris Abel postdoc competition, Changemakers at Homerton, and of course the Trinity Bradfield Prize. So if I can ask you to jump into the time machine and go back a little bit. Are there any kind of words of wisdom or any little nuggets that you could share with those people that are thinking about following an entrepreneurial path? Yeah, the thing that is really exceptional about Cambridge and that I so I did my undergrad at the University of North Carolina and, and I don't think we had the ecosystem like like we have here in Cambridge. The recommendation I would give would be if you're thinking about entrepreneurship, whether it's starting a company, joining an early stage company as a career, if you're a master's student, undergrad, PhD, postdoc, whatever it may be, you go and immerse yourself in those kinds of organizations. So I really met and bonded with Will and Charlotte, my co-founders, because we kept showing up at the Cambridge University Entrepreneur events. We saw each other around the college and it, and we were all working in biology. And so it almost, and we became friends and it became really clear that we had so much mutual and shared interests. We learned a lot of the, the hard lessons about how to pitch, how to write a business plan, how to not pitch, how to not write a business plan from those early reps that I think if we had waited until we graduated to start thinking about how do I build a business, how do I get it off the ground, we would have been years behind. And there's so much more even now than there was. There was pretty much only Cambridge University entrepreneurs when we were around. And we did, uh, Will and I, a little bit famously, would get together every year because they had a 100 100 pounds for 100 words competition. And um, 
we would get together for like a whole weekend and just write every idea we could possibly think of and we would submit them all. And so we'd submit like 45 ideas and the judges for a couple of years, they judged it blind. And so we would win like eight or eight or nine of these things and go home with eight or 900 pounds to spend on whatever we spent on those days. And then, and then they made it unblinded after a while, but we got so much good feedback as well of what was a good idea, what was a bad idea, what was an okay idea, at least in the eyes of the judges. And the early nugget for Sano that we ended up working on was one of those ideas that we took all the way through the competition. So it was an idea and then it was a uh, pitch and then it was a full business plan. My final question for you is what next? We're just at the start of 2023. What's the rest of the year going to look like for you? We've got a lot of plans. We're growing our customer base pretty significantly, and that's putting a lot of tests on the team. We're trying to scale the platform, grow the team at the same time. It's an exciting time. I mean, I think in our industry, the last year has been really, really rocky. A lot of biotech stocks have been completely hammered by the recession. Pharma are changing their plans, but it's been it's been you know really fun and worthwhile to navigate that storm with the team and and because of what we do we're pretty aligned with a core activity for biotech and pharma they've got to get drugs approved to survive and um, that's important for patients it's important for them so we've weathered the storm pretty well but it's been as you both know there's nothing except change when you're in this kind of industry so it's it's going to be a lot of fun but we've got a bunch of big growth plans this year on the tech product and and we're hiring as well for anybody who's listening to this we're in cambridge london all over the country and in the u.s as well so we'd love to hear from you i mean well thanks so much for taking the time to come on patrick it's been really insightful and great to talk to you again it's my pleasure thank you so much for the invitation today's show was produced by carl homer of cambridge tv and supported by our media partner business weekly The Cambridge Tech Podcast is available on all major podcast platforms and on cambridgetechpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review. It will really help others discover the show. If you are a startup looking to grow in Cambridge, the Bradfield Centre offers a range of flexible membership packages which put you in control of your office and home working mix. There's a vibrant, collaborative atmosphere, on-site cafe, plenty of green outside space and regular member social events. For more information, visit bradfieldcentre.com or call 01223 919 600.